0: Thank you for downloading this episode of a History of Central Florida podcast. This is the podcast where we explore Central Florida's history through the artifacts found in local area museums and historical societies. This series is brought to you by Riches, the regional initiative to collect the histories, experiences, and stories of Central Florida. and the Orange County Regional History Center. I am Kendra Hazen and I will be your host for today's episode titled Buck and Ball. Did you know that the Second Seminole War was the longest Indian conflict the United States ever pursued? Did you know it was also the most expensive Indian conflict? This period marks a change in Indian relations from trade and diplomacy to resistance and warfare. This podcast features buck and ball musket shot, found at the site of Fort King, that helps to explain this next chapter in Florida's history. Before Spain ceded east and west Florida to the United States in 1822, the Creeks, Miccosukees, and Seminoles found themselves faced with yet another shift in their economic negotiations since many trading stores disappeared dr andrew frank from florida state university describes this transition
1: right stores more or less get replaced by forts and forts sometimes serve the same functions uh, right so you can go to the fort and you can sometimes trade with a u.s agent but the trade is much more limited and and constrained and it comes with really um, explicit diplomatic strings. right? So at the Spalding store, you can come and you trade, and the presumption is if you trade with the British, you're allied with the British, but Spalding's not a British agent per se, right? It's not, you're not trading with the king. Um, By the 1820s, 1830s, if you come to the US agency and you come to the fort to trade, it's a pretty explicit statement Um, of your loyalty. Um, And often the United States calls upon that loyalty.
0: The first Seminole War, which was an outgrowth at the end of the War of 1812, was long over. Yet the U.S. continued to build forts like Fort King in today's Marion County. Author of the book, The Seminole Wars, America's Longest War, John Missel, tells us about Fort King's role during the period between the First and Second Seminole Wars.
2: Well, Fort King was opened soon after Florida was acquired by the United States. The Seminoles occupied most of the good land in Florida. In 1823, there was the Treaty of Moultrie Creek, which more or less forced them to move into central Florida. The government needed a place to have an agency where they could deal with the Seminoles. Fort King was chosen because it was in a good location by good water to the Seminoles it represented white authority. With the government, they had to go through the agency. The Seminole agent was their representative to the outside world. If there were complaints, they couldn't take it to court. They had to go through the agent. By
0: 1832, Fort King became a base for removal of the Seminoles. And by 1835, the Second Seminole War was underway. Missile explains the various reasons that led to the Second Seminole War.
2: There were a number of reasons for the Seminole War, the second one in particular. The first was the standard one of white people wanted Indian land. The Seminoles had been here first. They had settled the best land. Settlers were coming in, and they wanted that land. So there was always going to be this clash over the main resource of Florida, and that was land. It was also a clash of cultures. There was a the problem of slavery. Seminoles owned slaves, though they did not treat them like they, slaves were treated on plantations. Slaves tended to live very much the same as the Seminoles did. The Seminoles also welcomed runaways. And, of course, for a slave-holding economy like you had in the South, this was a real problem. The slave owners wanted their property back. There was also fights over cattle. Today the Seminoles are one of Florida's leading cattle producers. Back then they were one of Florida's leading cattle producers. And because there was no fenced-in farmland then with all open range, There was a lot of cattle wrestling went on back and forth. Whites would steal Seminole cattle. Seminole would try to get their cattle back. It was something that they argued about a lot. Lives were lost over that. So it was a general encroachment of white society upon a native society that didn't really want to change.
0: The Second Seminole War created a unique set of circumstances. Before the 19th century, resources bartered at trading stores were items like pelts, deer skins, and finished goods. But by the 1830s, land was the resource or commodity that was most in demand on the part of both the native peoples and U.S. settlers. The U.S. military presence believed that the land and the Indian population had to be conquered and removed to make way for the U.S. settlers. The forts, rifles, and musket balls were the objects the U.S. military relied on to achieve this goal. Gary Ellis, the director of Gulf Archaeology Research Institute, describes what kinds of items they find at sites like Fort King.
1: Part of the uh, extensive artifact uh, inventory, you're going to have the everyday Material culture of bomb glass and other glassware, ceramics, coinage, nails, which are extremely important to uh, historic archaeology, and accoutrements, pipage, medallions, and buttons, and finally shot, and uh, materials related to defensive and offensive warfare.
0: The shot that Gary Ellis describes was a ball of metal used as ammunition in the first half of the 19th century. During the Seminole Wars, shot was made from either iron or lead. The shot featured in this podcast was made from lead. We know this because over time, white oxidization appears on the shot. Gary Ellis tells us how Indians and the U.S. military used shot differently.
1: Now, the Seminole, they're less likely to use the buck and ball than the Army would use. So. The armies, they're going to put several of these small bucky balls uh, within the cartridge assembly and the main shot down the barrel. So when they're firing that bullet out, that round ball, there's a couple of uh, a little extra shot coming out, uh, kind of like the insurance shot. Uh, something's going to hit something, and the bucky ball can make a wound somewhat like a shotgun. The in, the seminole, on the other hand, their strategy of of stripping out cartridges and recovering the gunpowder and then melting down the the smaller buckyball and recasting that into uh, SHOT makes for an economy of effort on their end because they're firing on the run. They often don't even use a rod.
0: The locations of where SHOT is found around old forts and battle sites can tell us a great deal about the placement of battle lines and military strategies. Gary Ellis explains what the location, number, and alignment of shot can tell anthropologists.
1: If you're looking at the boundaries of a fort, then you'd be looking for nails and construction hardware and material culture more akin to subtle life. But battlefields, musket balls, often give away the positions or lines of defense and often lines of offense. So the defensive works will contain shot that came in, that clearly impacted something. Followed uh, inside of that by drop during the course of loading the weapon uh, during the the fury of battle. And similarly, amongst the Seminole outward firing towards the fort, you'll often find uh, uh, where shot has been received from the army and then drop shot as well, and uh, evidence of shot making with uh, the uh, the Seminole and their African-American allies are, are making their own shot on the spot.
0: The barter of musket balls, traded over hostilities between the United States and the Indians in Florida, replaced the previous generation's negotiated trade over furs and animal skins. For the Seminole and Miccosukee people that resisted and remained in Florida, their experiences from this period earned them the reputation as an unconquered people's. Here, missile describes what finally brought a conclusion to warfare with the Creek, Miccosukee, and Seminole Indians.
2: The Third Seminole War ended when the main leader, Billy Bowlegs, or Halata Miko, as he was properly known, when he finally decided to give up and emigrate to the West. Uh, he had held out as long as he could, His villages had been located, his crops destroyed, his people were beginning to starve. He felt you know, it was simply the best for his people that they give up the fight and move out west. Not all the Seminoles agreed with that, and many of them simply faded away farther into the Everglades, broke up into small groups, did their best to avoid the whites as much as possible. And besides, this is 1858 the nation's beginning to fall apart anyway. This wasn't a big concern for people anymore, and within two years, nobody even thought about it.
0: Even now, the Seminole Wars tend to be overshadowed by the Civil War. Yet, the Seminole Wars are not lost or forgotten. Archaeologists and historians today are still studying the remnants of material culture left from these wars to better understand the importance of this period. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of a History of Central Florida podcast. For more information about the items featured in this episode visit the Silver River Museum and Environmental Education Center at 1445 Northeast 58th Avenue Ocala Florida 34470 make sure to join us for our next episode titled Cannonball.